0: It's the Skinny Podcast, only on Local12.com. Now, here's Richard Skinner.
1: Welcome to the Skinny Podcast, the Reds edition presented by Joseph Infinity of Cincinnati. I'm Richard Skinner, Local12.com digital sports columnist and editor. On this week's edition, we speak with author John Arardi on his new book, Tony Perez, from Cuba to Cooperstown. And my pleasure now to welcome in John Arardi, a longtime reporter the Cincinnati Inquirer, author of numerous Reds books, and the latest thing... A very good one on Tony Perez from Cuba to Cooperstown. Um, John, first and foremost, it's an interesting book on many fronts that we're going to touch on, but one of the most interesting ones is this was, was written really um, w- without without talking to Tony.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I had 30 great years with Tony, and then when it came time to write the book, he was just too humble and modest to uh, take part in it, and it, it made it more difficult, but in a way it freed me up to write what I wanted because I think that Tony probably wouldn't have wanted as much in there about Cuba. I know he's uh, upset with the way things have gone in the homeland, and mm-hmm. um, so again, it allowed me to travel around, see people, go to Cuba, talk to whoever I wanted to talk to, or whatever I wanted to. So it's a good biography, but you're right; um, it, it was just more difficult without him.
1: Yeah, I, I guess it was, but but there are enough anecdotes from him from from past quotes, past conversations, past stories you told. Past experiences right. that you've had with him that right. that you still you get the feel that that he is part of this book though and I guess that's that that's the interesting part to it is it a lot of times you read biographies and it is um it's very much that person talking about their past experiences this was more anecdotal stuff that I, I found a lot of times for me and I know a lot about Tony Perez not not nearly as much as I, I would if I delved into it like you did but I, I knew a lot but it, it this book taught me a lot too without him having to say those things.
0: Yeah, thanks for saying that. Um, it was interesting because I, I have been reading a lot of uh, an author named Rick Atkinson, who's a wonderful um, war biographer, and he, he explained that he just learned a lot more from what he called contemporaneous accounts of World War II veterans, rather than going back to them 50 or 60 years later and getting almost nothing. He found that The more he could read and talk to other people about those experiences, it made the book just a lot fresher. So that was the um, methodology I adopted. I just talked to as many people as I could, went as many places as I could, and uh, didn't worry so much about what I didn't have, but concentrated on what I did and tried to explain it and put it all uh, to some kind of sensible form. And I think that I accomplished that. And for people who want to know a lot about Tony's grown-up years and minor league years, and especially those early big red machine years, which I found so fascinating as the team was coming together. I mean, this is this is the book. And my whole guiding light was when Johnny Bench said at Tony's statue dedication, we'll never know what he went through without walking in his shoes. You know, this this walks in his shoes. So, again, I'm very happy with it.
1: Yeah, let's start from the beginning, because um, the Cuba that Tony Perez left uh, was a Cuba that, that was in, in um, upheaval. Uh, the right. regime was was being challenged by castro and the guerrillas from the mountains and um uh and as someone who's a cuban heritage that i am my grandmother was from cuba she left back in uh back in the teens, um and and used to go it's it's interesting i've got a bunch of photos of her and my mom and dad from the 50s when they were vacationing in cuba um but i've never been never had a chance to go looking forward to eventually going going one day uh but knowing through all that history and and, and those that grew up with with Castro in power in Cuba, uh, guys like Tony Perez, the decision sounds easy. Well, yeah, just leave the homeland, come over here and, and play baseball. But it wasn't for a lot of reasons. For what Tony Perez and those guys in the 50s and early 60s went through, those are some really hard choices.
0: Yeah, um, very true, because Tony was uh youngest, as I understand it, of the six uh, Perez kids in Central Violeta. And the family was just so intertwined uh, among one another in Cuba by that time. They they just couldn't all up and leave like, for instance, Patuca Perez, Perez's wife did in, I think, 1961, right after the Bay of Pigs, because her husband, I mean, her father in Cardenas Cuba was involved in contracting. And so many people of property back then just up and left. I mean, yep. you, you're of Cuban heritage, and everybody I talk to uh, who is probably over the age of 60 that had to leave I always mentions either 61 or 62 because literally so many people, I think all of them, frankly, left with just a shirt on their back. And, you know, Patuka's family was like that. Tony and Patuka met in uh, San Juan, Puerto Rico in 1964, where Tony had gone to play winter ball. So that part of it had a happy ending. But Tony, again, Patuka's family could leave because they were all, it was a smaller family. They weren't that intertwined. And so, yeah, I mean, the dad and the mom could leave with the three daughters and, started a new life in Puerto Rico. But Tony literally couldn't do that. He he was in the States for three years playing pro ball, went home after every season, got caught by the Cuban Missile Crisis on October of 62, couldn't go back for 10 years, went back to see his dad on, basically on his deathbed in '72, oh, yeah. And um, very difficult for Tony uh, with that 10-year ten, ten absence. And I think in large part, he doesn't want to bring out the whole thing about Castro because you know it could be potentially uh, challenging for his family. Although I think a lot of that has passed with the passing of Fidel, um, it's, it's it's difficult times for Tony, and he really doesn't want to uh, go back and relive it. And, and, and Richard, that was my point: is that when I when I heard that Tony wouldn't even go back to Cuba with his son Eduardo, who at the time you know f- f- former cardinal, former Red uh, Major Leaguer, and at that time working in uh, working for ESPN. His dad said, Eduardo, I'd love to go back with you, but it's just too painful for me to do that and and do the documentary you want to do. So when I heard that, I said, well, I have no chance of getting Tony to agree with the book because he won't go back with his own son. So it's it's all uh, difficult, challenging times. But for Tony, the best part of the story is that he made such a success of himself when really he almost didn't get back out after the Cuban Missile Crisis.
1: Yeah, and and, and let's let, let's touch on that that early those early minor league years. I mean, you're talking about the Tony Perez that that many remember with the big red machine was this uh, slugging first baseman, but this was a a skinny raw kid who couldn't find a place to play defensively. uh right. w- was a was a bit of a butcher at times in the minors as <laughs> as, 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 a, as a middle infielder and um, uh, but but everybody and it's funny you start to read the parts of your book from from those years back even to his years playing in Cuba. As a, as a young man to what he became in the major leagues. And everybody talks about the one main thing with him, those wrists and how he could generate so much power, even though he weighed probably, what, about 140, 145, 150 pounds when he first came up.
0: Yeah, in fact, he tells a story about getting to Tampa in the uh, spring of 1960 and being given a uniform to put on. He swears it was Tech Liszewski's old uni because the armpits literally hung down to Tony's waist, you know, being 140 pounds he said I look ridiculous but yeah it was interesting Geneva 1960 Tony goes there remembers the cold of Auburn New York so well and um he 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 got to the team um and I think um April of that year Central New York imagine how cold it is and and who comes in six weeks later from Cincinnati Ohio but Pete Rose Rose and announces (laughs) his presence to the manager by saying I'm your new second baseman rather than saying I'm Pete Rose so Uh, That night, uh, Pete Washington-Hore, as Tony committed yet another error at second base, and by the next night, the manager decided to make a profit of that Rose kid and put Pete in it second, put Tony on the DL, and two weeks later, Tony comes back as a third baseman, which, as you remember, is the way he made it to the big leagues. Even though he platooned with uh, Gordy Coleman in 65 and 66, from 67 to 71, he was the Reds' everyday third baseman, and and that's how he – He made it, and he became an all-star and had his breakout season in 67. So the whole thing is connected. And what I like about the story is that one future Hall of Famer, because I still say Rose is that even though he isn't in the Hall, replaced another Hall of Famer at second base uh, in rookie ball. That cannot have happened in the history of baseball.
1: (laughs) I think that's that's a really really good point, because usually they've got at
0: least some some semblance of where they're going to play positionally. Uh, especially if
1: they're that hot of a prospect that eventually becomes a, a Hall of Famer. The other thing, too, too, from those those early years for Tony Perez, um, you know, he, he escapes a Cuba that's in, in, in turmoil, but he comes to an America, which is in some right. certainly some civil rights turmoil. So, you know, Tony and, and, and others, um, I can't say they were treated like black players were, but they were treated darn close to that. So you're leaving one place, coming to another where you feel like you've got freedoms, and you certainly probably have more than what you have in Cuba, but you still, there are a lot of challenges. It would be, it's hard for me to look at Tony Perez and guys of that era and go, how are you not angry?
0: Yeah, oh, definitely. I mean, there's that wonderful picture in the book of in uh, 1964, yep. when Tony was there. Actually, I'm sorry, Tony was there in 63, if I recall it correctly, because there's a picture of the crowd, and you can't see, there's a rope running up the middle of the grandstand, blacks on one side and whites on the other. And it was the same way with the, with the bath, bathrooms and, Tony had to take his meals in the station wagons. They drove around into, on road games. He couldn't go into the restaurants. They would bring him the sandwiches outside. So for Tony, I mean, he was absolutely uh, regarded just like an African-American. People only see the color of his skin and treated him as such. It wasn't until, um, I think, the summer of 64 where we saw the civil rights legislation. And um, so when Tony got to San Diego, uh, I think in 1964, everything had changed. Uh, it was a major league-type ballpark, major league city, uh, major league hotel. Everything was wonderful about it. So except for those years in the Deep South, uh, that would be uh, Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, uh, Macon, Georgia. Those were the tough towns for Tony. Other than those two towns, I think Tony had it pretty good. But, man, that was a tough way to leave your homeland, to go to the the, the deep south and have those experiences. Uh, I mean, I just can't imagine it.
1: When, when when Tony Perez came up and you mentioned 65 and, and uh, really kind of became a full-time player uh, right. the year after and, and 67 made the all-star team and hit that game-winning homer in, in, in extra innings, the other part I thought the book that made it interesting to me was, um, and I've read The Construction of the Big Red Machine, but this takes you on a mm-hmm. different side of it to some degree. How much did that interest you as you went through it to, See how Bob Housam kind of continued to build that team, and Tony was kind of, I don't want to say the center of it, but darn near close to the center of it.
0: Well, it's interesting because um, I'm glad you asked that, because in the mid-60s, I think it was around 65, 66, when Tony was first starting to emerge, two things came up. One is the Reds definitely regarded regarded Tommy Helms, uh, Pete Rose's teammate, and Macon in 62 as being a much better prospect than Tony, which is really interesting. And the second thing is, there have been accounts that the Reds themselves, not necessarily house him, because he didn't get here until 67, but the Reds scouts regarded Lee May as a better prospect than Tony. So Tony almost reminds me a little bit of, of Joey Votto in the sense that Joey didn't really get... Uh, entrenched here until the mid 20 uh, mid his, his mid 20s which makes it hard to make the hall of fame because if you if you don't have time to have 20 really good years you you have a tough time making the hall so tony was kind of uh not their guy so to speak in in those early years but eventually became that because they they did see that great power especially the center and right center field which is the way he grew up hitting the ball in cuba so you know Tony definitely paid his dues, and by 67, it's interesting because his competition that year at third base in the National League for the All-Star team, I believe, was Ron Santo and, I think, Richie Allen. And Dick Allen. Dick was the, Allen
1: was the, was the leading vote getter that
0: year. Yeah, man. yeah. And, uh, exactly. and the interesting part of that is that Tony really didn't, des- in a way, he didn't deserve to make the All-Star team because he was behind Santo and Allen in stats, but you you can tell that even in the road ballparks where people would vote on the Hall of Fame, they could see the way Tony carried himself, and, and they liked that great smile. of his, and they, I think they just felt like, you know, this is a class act, and he's going to get my vote. So Tony makes the all-star team, mm. hits his only all-star hit with that big home run in the 15th inning off Catfish. Man, you talk about a lot of mileage off of one all-star hit. <laughs> that, that was going on forever.
1: Uh, you know, you, you you were talking about the Tommy Helms circumstance, and and, and it was a crowded Reds team then because Pete Rose was a second baseman, um, Darren Johnson who was coming off in sixty five one hundred and thirty RBI. Years. Right. he was he was a guy who never really had a position either, but third base was kind of where they thought about playing him. Lee May was coming up as a first baseman. Mm-hmm. Tony was a first baseman, um, and, and it, there was some talk, obviously in those in those years in you know sixty six sixty seven through sixty eight maybe sixty nine of of making a decision on, on maybe trading Tony Perez. Other teams were certainly interested in him. I know this is going to be a hypothetical question. I fell your way, John. Yeah. If the Reds had traded Tony Perez, do they eventually win a World Series?
0: I don't think so because I made the point a long time ago that that home run that uh, Tony hit off Bill Lee, Game 7, 1975 World Series, was the most important hit in Reds history because without that, there's a good chance the big Red machine is remembered as – more of the Buffalo Bills, they got right. there, but they couldn't complete the deal because if you remember, seventy seventy two, they're in the World Series, they that would can't have been win the
1: it. Time in five years, right? Yeah,
0: so I mean, the whole point, and Johnny Bench has made this point, they had a little bit of the flavor of the Bills and maybe even the Atlanta Braves, who only won one World Championship and arguably should have won more. So there was a lot of pressure on that team, and I think they felt it in seventy five by seventy six, they just blasted the New York Yankees, and that's what started the comparisons with the uh, nineteen twenty seven Yankees which is one of the great teams. In Baseball history, but what's interesting to me about the whole Bob Hausem, you know, architect, the big red machine and Tony, is that as early as 1974, Hausem was looking to trade Tony. And the whole reason was they liked Greg Nettles, uh, who at the time right. I think was in Cleveland and later it became a Yankee. They liked him. They liked him. But the problem, problem with, with Bob Hausem is that he grew up with the philosophy of Branch Rickey, who we trained under, which is trade the guy a year early. Rather than a year late, so yes, if Tony gets traded, as Hausen wanted to do? Arguably, there's no there's no big red machine to speak of in terms of world championships, and more importantly, there's no Tony President of Hall of Fame because just as Joe Morgan rode the big red machine to the Hall, you know Tony rode the big big red machine to the Hall, and that's where you get into a team being such a great song of its parts. So, uh, Tony Tony told Job. Joe, if you didn't come over here, nobody would even know your name. And arguably, <laughs> if Tony had been tr- traded when Hausman wanted to, we wouldn't really even kn- remember Tony the way we do, you know, so fondly today.
1: No, I, I think we would regard Tony Perez like we do Steve Garvey, a very good yes. player in that era, but probably. And I want to touch on this in a little bit. Probably, uh, probably not a Hall of Famer, if that's the case. And one of the reasons, and that's where I want to kind of move the story forward, is when the Reds eventually did trade Tony Perez. One of the reasons you talked about in '74. They were looking to put Greg Nettles at third in a trade and move their third baseman, who was a butcher there, Dan Dreesen, over to first base because of his hitting ability. Let's eventually do trade Tony Perez to make room for Dan Dreesen, and I know a lot of people in that era growing up, and I was in this city as a, as a teenager at that point, point. Um, and I even understood why they did it, but I know a lot of fans think that was the demise of the big red machine. But realistically, maybe clubhouse-wise, maybe the intangibles-wise, yes. Production-wise, Really, there was not a lot of drop-off from Tony Perez to Van Dreeson. And did it stink for the Reds to trade him? Absolutely. No question about it. If you grew up uh, watching those two World Series championship teams and the way Tony
0: Perez carried himself from a baseball move,
1: probably the right thing to do?
0: Yes, I would agree with that. And the reason I say that is because Tony had a great clubhouse presence, but you cannot make up for the starting pitching uh bows that the uh, the prez had in 1977 now the interesting thing is and a couple people have brought this up if you look at the subsequent seasons of uh of uh 78 79 80 81 that era i mean potentially tony could have made a difference because the races were closer Mm -hmm. the pitching was better the Res were right in the hunt and maybe a couple more wins uh you know they they get there, but certainly in '77, uh, Dresan and Perez had the same year. Tony was in Montreal, Danny was here. Uh, same season, basically uh, in terms of RBIs and production. But again, they would have lost the clubhouse presence of Tony. But you can't make up for uh, a lack of starting pitching, and clearly they uh, suffered greatly in that department in '77. In fact, I, 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 when I was doing my research for the book, at one point I was doing my rough draft, and I concluded that uh, the Reds couldn't even have even won in 1977 if they had Lou Gehrig in 1927 <laughs> playing first base, and my friend looked it up, my numbers guy, Greg Gages, and he said, well, they would have finished the game short because uh, people don't like analytics so much in this town, I've noticed, but uh, literally, uh, Lou was a 10-war above replacement player, and and you if you make up 10 games in the standings, you're close to winning at all, so right. it, it was it was interesting that that my numbers got looked at it that way, but certainly the the, the subsequent years, again, 78, 79, 80, 81, um, having Tony might've made a difference. So I probably should have addressed that more in the book, frankly. Um, John, you mentioned the point of, of Tony being a part of those great Reds
1: teams probably carried him into the hall of fame, but, but he did, even after Montreal played there for three years, went on, had a great year in Boston and then, Reaching into his forties, became you know a, I don't want to say a bit player. That's not fair. A, a platoon player in some sort of right. as a pinch hitter and others. As he got into his forties, I mean the guy played until he's forty four. Uh, even starting with that that year in Boston in nineteen eighty when he when he hits twenty five homers, drives in one hundred and five runs, and then just the numbers he put up after that. If he doesn't add to the numbers he had when he left Cincinnati, does that does 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 he still stay short of the Hall of Fame despite being a part of those great Red teams?
0: Oh, I, I I think very likely he, he he does finish short. It took him nine tries to get in, as it was. Um, yeah, he did play well in Montreal and Boston. In fact, arguably his best bit role was in Philly in 1983 when he and, and Rose and Morgan helped lead the team to the World Series. So, yes, it's interesting in 19 I'm sorry 2000 when uh, Carlton Fisk and Tony went in together to the Hall, uh, and I didn't realize it at the time. I wish I had, but. Looking back at it now, when they, and when they held up their plaques above their head, uh, there's no doubt in my mind after doing the research that I, we, I was looking that day at the two best former 43-year-old baseball players in major league <laughs> history because literally they were one, two, in every meaningful analytic for productive hitters. And um, I was taught as a young writer that if a player – is productive in his late 30s and early 40s without the help of steroids you're probably looking at looking at a hall of famer you know that day i was and um there's no doubt in my mind richard that tony was so close to being borderline hall of fame that obviously without the big red machine he doesn't make it and i would say without those early 40s seasons he had uh he doesn't make it either yeah
1: um John, maybe and this is probably put you on the spot. Was was there one or two things that you learned from this book where that just made you go wow?
0: Well, one thing for sure, I didn't realize at all was that Tony Perez was one hell of a of a basketball basketball player. But but
1: but, but he quit because he said people kept getting
0: hurt. Yeah, it was the games were so physical back home in Cuba that even though he was good, he saw guys dropping left and right with broken arms and broken legs, and he said, the heck with this, I want to be a baseball player. Uh, get out of this country go make some money in the United States of America so ultimately that's what he did so that was one interesting thing and I think the other interesting thing to me is that in traveling around Cuba I found that except for the people of his hometown nobody in the entire country knows who he was and that's something that was that was just unbelievable to me and you know, today I think that it's starting to get reconnected. That is the Cuban people with their major leaguers. For instance, just in last year's World Series, Yuli um, U- Gurriel and Yazza Puig each hit a couple of home runs. That right. was the first time, you know, two Cubans uh, had hit home runs in a World Series, I think, since I was growing up in 1965. So I think Tony laments the fact that that connection between the Cuban people and the Cuban major leaguers that he enjoyed so much with his dad growing up in the fifties, you know, that had been lost, but I think to a certain extent it's coming back. And and I just hope ultimately that one day the two countries can reconcile because the people are great there. And I was treated great by the Cuban people. And I know that from my experiences uh, in in this country is when I've met Cuban people, I have a real warmth for them. So I'd like to see that get reconnected and it's going to be difficult as long as Raul Castro is in some sort of power. You know, he's the head of the Communist Party in Cuba. So ultimately, until they get new blood and get the American dollars back in there and free up the tourism industry, it's not going to change. But ultimately, one day, I think, and I hope Tony lives to see it, it's going to be the way it was in the 50s. Not from a standpoint of uh, Batista, the the, the president, making things bad, but just from a standpoint of there being a free flow of people back and forth. Good economic climate and more, more civil liberties that's the part that i suffered through when i was there
1: yeah and and for those that uh um maybe didn't see it the, the Luis Tiant 30 for 30 when he went back yeah. to cuba was was um something that that you know was was really eye-opening for me to see and 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 i i'm i'm hoping i'm sure tony perez saw that obviously he yeah. knows Luis Tiant. hopefully he saw that and, and before before his day comes to an end he he finds it in his heart and in his mind to to go back because I, I think he would I think he would probably relish the opportunity to go back at least one time I, I really believe that
0: Yeah and it's interesting because you know Tony did get back in seventy two I'm, I'm yep. sorry yeah seventy two and then he made For a few dad. more subsequent trips with his with his wife and two sons but um, it, even uh, Victor Perez the eldest uh, Perez son made the point it's hard to feel connected. You know, to your cousins, the, after the passage of so many years, you didn't grow up with them, so there's a disconnect there. And I think ultimately uh, you're right to bring up the, the, the aunt parallel because Tony sent um, uh, Louis a, a telegram before the 1975 World Series and just uh, was so um, happy for Louis that he could bring his parents over here to see him pitch in the World Series. And, and Tony's parents never even got to see him play right. a game of professional baseball, let alone play in the World Series.
1: Yeah, and Tehan's father was, was a great uh, – Yes, he was.
0: Great left-hander. Yep. Yeah.
1: Um, John, uh, real quickly, I'd be remiss if I didn't touch on the, on the current state of the Reds because, as I mentioned, for those that, that maybe only know you as an author, you were a longtime reporter at the Enquirer and, and dabbled in covering the Reds um, from time to time. And actually, uh, I think towards the end of your career, you started to do some stuff with, with Sabermetrics and uh, yeah. kind of explaining some of that, which I thought was interesting. Um, where does Team is We do this podcast to 7-24. Wow. And you and I were talking before we did this. There are a lot of parts I like on this. I, I like the everyday eight when it's healthy. I like the upside of Tyler Malley. Hopefully they fix Luis Castillo because he pitched very well in his most recent start after a mechanical fix. There are some parts I like a lot, not just like, but like a lot, and, and it makes me scratch my head. How is this team seven and twenty four? And how do you keep selling this this rebuild to the to the fan base when they see not only no progress, they see regression?
0: Yeah, that that's the hard part. I've always said major league franchises have to win and they have to draw, not necessarily in that order because drawing is so important and when you lose, you lose hope, you lose everything and I think that's what the fans are starting to come to in Cincinnati um but we both know that pitching ultimately is going to get you there and that's why I'm not totally um without hope because I do think that among those arms that they're going to have a productive rotation one day. The problem with baseball, and you know it well, is that if you don't hit on the days you pitch really well, there's a chance you're going to lose the game, and that's what's happened so much to the Reds. And I'm not going to try to sell anybody a bill of goods about this team because I think it's really pretty dismal right now. The only thing I would say is that in in the young arms there is hope, and uh, I thought it was going to start to show itself this year, but um, at this point you'd have to say, you know, no. It might be more like two or three years away rather than a year away. Yeah, and that's going to be hard to sell to the fan. That's going to be impossible. Which, which, that's going to be impossible to sell.
1: And you're starting to see it. I mean, I know the weather's been bad. I know April's not great for attendance. I know there are some some mitigating factors, but I also think when when you're seeing crowds less than ten thousand, or at least announced attendance of less than ten thousand, it means your se- season ticket base is less than ten thousand. Yeah. And that's not a good sign.
0: No, I was re-reading the other day about. Los Angeles Dodgers and how you know they're having their own problems out there. I think was the was the worst start and that's hard to believe, worst start than maybe 1965 yeah. or something. But something the like the yeah. point is that they draw 3.7 million fans a year and got that huge TV contract. You can do a lot with 3.7 million fans instead of what the Reds are drawing. So th- that's the whole point is that it's sort of a never-ending cycle. If you're not drawn, then you're not making money, and in a small market, then you cannot acquire the good players. So man you people were talking about the parallels between Cincinnati and say the Cubs and Houston Houston especially because they went through such dismal times for such a long time aren't really a huge market and really knocked off the Dodgers with a considerably inferior payroll so um but but the difference is i think that um Houston hadn't you know not been good for a while and, and they were down and i'm sure their attendance was terrible but it was almost like, well, we never were any good, so we'll ride this out. Maybe someday we'll get good. Well, in, in, in the red sense, the team's been to the um, postseason in, in, in 10, 12, and 13. And in 12 argue, uh, 2012, the arguments should have won it. That was right. their window. When you, when you so when you So when that's so fresh in your memory and then you see it drop off so precipitously, which is where it is now, that's when I think it's even worse because you think, my God, what happened here? And i um, I'll still ask ask the same question: What happened here? Because I'm I'm like you, I can't quite figure out the seven and twenty-four. That just blows my mind. Yeah,
1: and and you know when you start to have the attendance to where it is, and you start to lose, you lose a chunk of a fan base that it's very difficult to bring back without yep. winning big, and winning big is very very difficult to, to do. They they put themselves in quite a quandary.
0: Yeah, it's interesting how in this city, and we're well known for this here, is that you get your bump in attendance after the good season, not during it. So even if this team turned it around for some reason miraculously, it wouldn't really make that huge a difference in attendance. And then if they don't make uh, acquisitions in the spring of next year to start to fill in some gaps and and start to compete, then, then you start getting to that cycle of, well, how how long are we going to talk here about not being in the postseason, not making a dent in the postseason? We've had some rough times. You go as far back as the '30s, and of course, even the early '2000s were rough here. So, I are in mean, one hell of a prolonged down period. And uh, I'm like you, Richard. I'm a baseball fan. I'm not liking. I'm not liking it one bit. Nope.
1: One thing I do like though is the book. The book from John O'Rarity, Tony Perez from Cuba to Cooperstown. John, uh, tell people how they can uh, can pick up a copy.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's available at um, Orange Fraser Press, which is my publisher. It's available on Amazon. It's doing really well on Amazon. And, of course, it's available at uh, Joseph Joseph's Bookstores, where I did my book launch. So I'll be at the uh, Reds uh, Stadium on uh, Saturday doing some book signings outside the Reds Hall of Fame. And I'll be at Smoke Justice uh, oh, yeah. Sports Bar in Covington, May 12th, 2 to 4 going to have a Tony Perez in absentia birthday party he'll be he'll turn 76 a couple days later so come on out talk some baseball and buy a book and I'll be happy to sign it for you
1: yes indeed my man Richard Dickman at Smoke Justice that'll be a, a, a good time
0: John I appreciate the time thanks so much the book is outstanding I would
1: highly recommend it good thank you Richard very good that's John Arardi the book Tony Perez from Cuba to Cooperstown John thanks very much this has been the skinny podcast You're on local12.com presented by Joseph Infinity of Cincinnati